Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so as we go over recent developments in the public safety labor world. Good news for everybody. I'm not going to talk about AI this month. Now, it's not that there haven't been developments in AI. It's just I don't think it's fair to AI three months in a row. Uh, but I promise you I'll be back because there are those developments, particularly in terms of people researching case law on AI and what the very interesting results are. More on that next month. This month, I've got five cases that I want to talk to you about. They're from all over the country, and they all illustrate some basic principles that I think it's helpful to have some reminders about from time to time. And let's start with a case uh, coming out of Oregon. Not too many cases that I report on here uh, come out of Oregon. We have a fairly well-developed labor law system up here, so we have relatively few conflicts, uh, but uh, we occasionally will have a case that I think is a pretty important one. And that's the situation with this case involving the Pendleton City Police Association and the city of Pendleton. You may be asking yourself, Pendleton, you mean those plaid shirts? Yes, indeed. Pendleton, the home of Pendleton Woolen Mills. Uh, also, once upon a time, uh, Pendleton, the area around Pendleton, was sculpted by what's known as the Missoula Ice Dam breaking that sent huge waves of water that made their way to the Oregon and Washington coast, cutting the Columbia River Gorge in the process. And Pendleton lies right on the edge of the Columbia River Gorge. Okay, enough ancient history. What's going on in this case? Uh, well, the Pendleton City Police Association has represented police officers in the city of Pendleton for, oh, at least 25, 30 years, for a long period of time. However, they've got somebody nipping at their toes, and that somebody is the Fraternal Order of Police. Now, uh, for those of you who aren't in the Pacific Northwest, uh, I need to set the stage just a little bit for you. The FOP is a national organization, probably the closest thing that we have to a large national police union, kind of, sort of, because it's not really a union. It does have labor functions from time to time. It's quite complicated. Uh, we do have smaller ones, like the International Union of Police Associations. That's a national labor organization member of the AFL-CIO. But the FOP, I think, has the greatest penetration of any national labor organization in the country in the labor market. But it's very geographically divided. We don't see much of the FOP in California, Oregon, and Washington, or pretty much anywhere on the West Coast. You do see the FOP representing some smaller organizations, uh, and you do see the FOP's legal defense plan uh, with some degree of coverage out in the Pacific Northwest. Mostly, though, police tend to go with the PORAC plan. Um, 
but the FOP is trying to make inroads. And one of the ways that it is trying to make inroads is by using the services provided under the legal defense plan as a way of getting into a particular city, showing the police officers there that they know their stuff, and then hopefully somewhere down the road, or at least as the theory goes, the police officers will decertify their unions and replace them with the FOP. Hasn't happened too much, and it's only happened with uh, very small organizations, but still, uh, it has occurred. Well, what's going on in uh, Pendleton? Uh, in Pendleton, the city fired a police officer who's identified only in the subsequent opinions as ST. So I'll refer to him either as the officer or ST. And the city fired ST for a variety of different performance issues. Uh, the same day that ST is fired, the FOP's attorney, and mind you, uh, the FOP doesn't handle collective bargaining in Pendleton, so this is through the legal defense plan. The FOP's attorney, uh, an attorney by the name of uh, Kirsten Curtis, files a grievance on behalf of ST, alleging that the department had imposed discipline on ST without just cause. And the next day, Curtis, the attorney, notifies the association's president that ST uh, wanted uh, a particular representative to handle the termination grievance. So the grievance is filed using the language provided by the attorney, Curtis, uh, and it starts to get processed through the grievance procedure. And less than a month later, on December 1, grievance is filed on November 4th, so less than a month later, uh, the association holds a grievance committee meeting for the purpose of considering ST's termination grievance. And in the structure of the Pendleton City Police Association, the grievance committee makes decisions about whether or not cases go to arbitration. The underlying contract, and this is going to become very important, the underlying contract, when you get to the arbitration, says, and I'm quoting, if the city manager is unable to resolve the grievance within five calendar days, the grievance may be referred to binding arbitration upon the written request by the association. So in other words, this is one of these arbitration clauses and most labor contracts, virtually all, easily over 90% are written this way. This is one of these contracts where the gatekeeper to arbitration is the union. Unless the union decides to take affirmative steps to refer a grievance to arbitration, the grievance dies at whatever the pre-arbitration step is. So, December 1, association holds a grievance committee meeting, uh, decides we are not going to advance the grievance to arbitration. Uh, Curtis, again, the lawyer, back in the picture now, the lawyer for the FOP, asks the city to process the grievance to arbitration. The city says no. We're not going to. 
Only the union can go to arbitration. Curtis's response, the FOP's response, is to file an unfair labor practice complaint against the city, saying that ST has the right to refer a grievance to arbitration. Well, the FOP has actually tried this on other occasions in Oregon, and Oregon's Employment Relations Board has rejected it because of contract language that says only the union has the right to refer a grievance to arbitration, and the FOP isn't the union that is a signatory to the contract. So on this occasion, the FOP makes a slightly different argument. Uh, ST and the FOP argue before the Employment Relations Board that a portion of Oregon's Peace Officers' Bill of Rights establishes a statutory right for employees to be able to go to arbitration so long as there's no express conflict with the terms of the underlying collective bargaining agreement. So ST argues, look, there's no express conflict with the terms of the contract. Therefore, the department's refusal to process my grievance to arbitration violates the Collective Bargaining Act and is an unfair labor practice. So how does the Employment Relations Board deal with the issue? Uh, the board says, okay, we're going to look at this the way we looked at any questions dealing with disputed contract language. First of all, we are going to see whether the text of the language in the context of the contract as a whole, whether that text is clear and unambiguous. And if it is, we're done. The analysis ends. Unambiguous contracts have to be enforced according to their terms. And so what's ambiguous contract language? And the board says, Contract language is ambiguous if it can be given more than one plausible interpretation. And if it's ambiguous, then we look at the party's intent. So we look at past practice. We look at negotiations history. We look at all of these extrinsic aids to interpretation of the contract, but only if the contract language is ambiguous. And the Labor Board says, this contract's not ambiguous. Now, we have to start, says the board, a little bit earlier in the grievance procedure. And we can see in the early steps of the grievance procedure, as early as step one, that the function of the grievance committee is to determine whether the grievance, and I'm quoting, is actually a valid grievance, end quote. And the Labor Board says that if you read this language as a whole, uh, and I'm quoting, a valid grievance is one that advances to the next step of the grievance procedure, while a grievance that has been disregarded does not. The meaning of those terms, valid and disregarded, is not ambiguous. The contract 
unambiguously vests the grievance committee, not an individual employee such as ST, with the authority to determine whether a grievance is valid or whether a grievance should be disregarded and therefore not allowed to proceed. Bottom line, says the board, contract's not ambiguous. Only the union can refer a grievance to arbitration. The union chose not to do so. Complaint dismissed. And that's the way uh, the other cases that I talked about that the FOB has been bringing in Oregon, that's the way they've been resolved as well. And as I mentioned, uh, that's the standard way uh, grievance procedure language is written around the country. So this is not really a surprise. In fact, not a surprise at all. Uh, it's just something I think we need to be reminded of that the union, uh, in almost all cases, is going to be the only entity that can refer a grievance to arbitration. So what is the remedy for an affected member who has her or his grievance turned down at the arbitration stage, turned down by the union. And the answer is the only remedy is to file a complaint for breach of duty of fair representation against the union. But unless a union really messes up in the procedures that it uses to handle the grievance, a duty of fair representation, unfair labor practice complaint, extremely unlikely to be successful. Uh, what this says is, if a member wants to take a grievance to arbitration, better be putting on a great case before the union's grievance committee or executive board. Let's go down to Texas for our next case and yet one more case involving a constitutional challenge to paid union leave. You may remember that starting, well, I want to say seven or eight years ago, uh, various uh, nonprofit organizations funded in part, in some cases in large part, by the Koch brothers uh, began a concerted attack around the country alleging that union leave provisions were unconstitutional. Uh, and of course, the motivation behind that was that these nonprofit organizations just simply want to put unions out of business. They're very clear. They're very open about it. Uh, these were the same sorts of folks who were behind uh, convincing the Supreme Court to get rid of fair share in union contracts uh, and produce the Janus decision. Well, uh, another area of their focus has been in the area of union leave. This latest case comes out of Texas. In particular, the collective bargaining agreement between the city of Austin and the Austin Firefighters Association. That contract provides a shared bank of paid leave for city firefighters to use association activities. It's a kind of a pool system and the association leave provisions in the contract establish a pool of 5,600 hours of paid leave for the association's president and other authorized association representatives to use to conduct union business and the type of union business that can be 
conducted while on union leave is described at some length uh, in the collective bargaining agreement. We'll post the collective bargaining agreement online in the show notes. You want to be looking at Article 10 of the collective bargaining agreement. So we have a taxpayer's lawsuit uh, suing both the city and the association, contending that the association leave provision violates the, and I'm quoting, gift clauses, end quote, in the Texas state constitution. Most state constitutions have clauses that prohibit the gift of public funds to private entities, uh, and so it is with the Texas state constitution. Now, the state of Texas intervenes in the lawsuit in support of the taxpayer's challenge. I want to tell you how strange this is, because when a, a statute is uh, challenged, and in this case, it, the statute is the statute that gives the right to the union to collectively bargain, you normally would see the state defending the under, underlying statute. And in this case, the state is telling the court our own statute that we passed is unconstitutional. Very unusual uh, politics in Texas on these issues. Well, the case ends up at the Texas Court of Appeals, at least for now. The Texas Supreme Court sounds like it may be wanting to take a shot at this case as well. But for now, this is I'm going to be describing the decision of the Texas Court of Appeals. And it rejects the taxpayer challenge to the association leave provision. And here's where the court starts. The court says, look, the prohibition on the use of public money for private purposes means that the legislature here the Austin City Council, cannot require gratuitous payments of public funds to individuals, associations, or corporations. But that's not the end of the issue, because the question in the, this sort of case is, when is the payment of funds gratuitous? And it's not gratuitous, says the court, if the city receives return consideration. It has long been held, says the court, quote, the law does not prohibit payment to individuals, corporations, or associations so long as the statute requiring such payments serves a legitimate public purpose and affords a clear public benefit received in return. And the court says that's exactly the case here. We know that's not how the taxpayers characterize the association leave provision. They characterize it as a standalone provision in the contract that's nothing more than a grant of funds to the union. But that's not the whole picture, says the court. And I'm going to quote from three or four sentences of the court's opinion here because it gives you a really good flavor for how these sorts of cases are analyzed by courts. Quote, in this case, 
the association leave provision was a bargain for term of the collective bargaining agreement. And the right of firefighters authorized by the association to receive such leave was part of the agreed compensation provided for in the agreement. Okay, you're probably getting a feeling where this is going, part of the agreed compensation. Quote, here, in addition to the fire protection services that the city receives in return for the compensation terms of the agreement, um, including the compensation provided by the association leave provision, there is evidence that the city receives additional consideration in the form of concessions by the association. Okay, now you know clearly where this is going. The court is saying, we're going to construe this contract as a whole, and we're going to see whether or not the association leave provision is part of the grand quid pro quo where the city got stuff it otherwise wouldn't get. Back to the court, quote, these concessions resulted in changes in Austin favorable to the city on matters otherwise governed by the civil service provisions found in Texas law. These matters include hiring, promotions, disciplinary investigation, disciplinary appeal, appeals, allowing for differences in base wages based on seniority, longevity pay, required certifications, goes on and on and on. And the court is saying, when you look at this agreement as a whole, there is plenty in the way of concessions that the city got by, way, by virtue of this collective bargaining agreement, there is the adequate quid pro quo that does not make the association leave provision a gift of public funds. This next case is going to seem a little bit strange to many of you, uh, depending upon where you live in the country. But uh, believe it or not, political patronage still exists, and it in particular exists with respect to county sheriff's departments. And in some parts of the country, a minority of states, but still some pretty substantial states, uh, you have state courts that have upheld a new sheriff coming in and completely cleaning house, firing everybody from the most senior uh, undersheriff all the way to the most junior uh, janitor, and doing so on the basis that the people that he's firing uh, did not support him in his run for sheriff. And courts in some states, a few states, have upheld that. Now, Texas is one of those states that allows political patronage, and the case I want to talk to you about raises an interesting question, and that is whether or not a collective bargaining agreement can limit a sheriff's right to fire large swaths of the employees of a sheriff's department. So what's this one all about? 
This is about Orange County, Texas, which has a collective bargaining agreement with the Orange County Sheriff's Office Employees Association. And that collective bargaining agreement has an arbitration provision. When Sheriff Keith Merritt retired in 2020, Jimmy Mooney ran for and won election as sheriff. And one of the first things that Mooney does is to send a letter to 13 deputy sheriffs stating, and I'm going to quote this so you can get a feel for this letter. Quote, as you know, under Texas law, your Texas Commission on Law Enforcement, held by the Orange County Sheriff's Office, expires with the end of Sheriff Merritt's term. The newly elected sheriff must sign the deputization for each sworn position, including his ranking staff, deputies, correctional officers, and telecommunicators. Here it comes. After careful consideration, I have filled all available positions within the sheriff's office. It is with much regret that I am unable to extend an offer of employment to you at this time. End of quote. You're fired. At least the sheriff regrets firing you, but you are fired. That's the message of that letter. But remember that collective bargaining agreement thing? Here, the association challenges the sheriff's decision through filing grievances. So the county turns around and sues the former deputies in the association, seeking a declaratory judgment that the sheriff's, the new sheriff's decision not to appoint the former deputies. The county wants a declaration that that decision was not subject to arbitration under the collective bargaining agreement. That issue goes to the uh, Texas Court of Appeals, and the court says, go ye forth to arbitration. The court says, look, nobody's challenging the validity of the collective bargaining agreement or the arbitration clause. Nobody is saying that the collective bargaining agreement is ambiguous. The only disputed issue is whether or not the claims at issue, we were not reappointed, therefore we lost our jobs, whether the claims at issue are governed by the collective bargaining agreement. So what standard are we going to apply, says the court? And here's the answer, quote, a grievance is arbitrable unless it may be said with positive assurance that the arbitration clause is not susceptible of an interpretation that covers the asserted dispute. Any doubts as to whether the association's grievance falls within the scope of the grievance procedures of the agreement must be resolved in favor of arbitration, end quote. So the court is adopting a standard that has been used repeatedly by the United States Supreme Court you find this in the Steelworkers trilogy of cases there, and a standard that has been used by courts all over the country. And that is, we're going to defer to arbitration. Unless we can say with, and that phrase, positive assurance, comes right out of the U.S. Supreme Court. Unless we can say with positive assurance 
that this dispute is not arbitrable, you're going to arbitration. So uh, how does the court analyze this one? And I'm quoting. Here, the definition of disciplinary action in the contract includes suspensions without pay, demotions, terminations, promotional passovers, failure to rehire, uh-oh, failure to rehire, or any other punitive action which results in loss of pay. The deputies and the association contend that the new sheriff's decision was disciplinary action because it was a failure to rehire. And the court ends up saying that, you know what, that's a decision for the arbitrator. Any dispute as to the existence, scope, or validity of the arbitration agreement under the rules and procedures of the American Arbitration Association get decided by an arbitrator. Back to the court, quote, the party's adoption of the AAA American Arbitration Association rules in the collective bargaining agreement is clear and unmistakable evidence that they intended to allow the arbitrator to decide whether the grievances are governed by the collective bargaining agreement. And so uh, the court says, go back to arbitration and the arbitrator, we don't know what he's gonna decide or she's gonna decide, but we do conclude that the matter should be resolved through the arbitration process. And this decision too is no big surprise because courts, whenever they get the chance, uh, will defer to arbitration. Now, I'm gonna be a little bit cynical when I say courts defer to arbitration in large part because that means that those disputes don't get decided by courts and the workload goes down for courts. Can you imagine what would happen to the workload of courts if courts took an expansive view of their authority to construe arbitration clauses? Think of every place that arbitration is in our lives, not just collective bargaining agreements, but have you bought a car lately? Have you purchased insurance? Have you bought a house? Do you have credit cards? you may be surprised to find that you're covered by a lot of arbitration clauses that you don't know anything about. And what happens if you ease up on the standard of review so courts can freely interpret arbitration clauses? What happens to the dockets of the court systems? Well, they're going to explode, right? So. I think that's a main reason that you see this great deal of deference to resolving things in arbitration. Courts will just simply say, hey, look, you, whoever it is, union, management, you agreed to an arbitration clause. You're stuck with that until you negotiate something different. Now let's go up to Illinois and talk about a liberty due process claim. What's a liberty due process claim? 
You know, mostly when we think of due process rights under the combination of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments to the Constitution, mostly we're thinking of due process that is required because somebody has a property right, either a property right because they own a particular piece of property or because the government is trying to seize property or money, or a property right to a job. Uh, a property right, you get a property right to the job if somehow or another the employer's ability to terminate your job at will is limited. So if the employer has a civil service system or has uh, agreed to a collective bargaining agreement with an arbitration clause, you're going to find that public safety employees have property rights to the job. And property rights means that the employer has to follow certain procedures. In particular, under a case decided long ago by the U.S. Supreme Court called Loudermill versus Cleveland Board of Education, and we'll post a link to that in the show notes. Under the Loudermill case, it means the employer has to give an employee notice of its intent to terminate the employee or to issue an unpaid suspension. Property rights, in fact, are triggered by suspensions as well as terminations. The employer has to give notice of its intent to take disciplinary action and then must provide the employee with a hearing, uh, the opportunity to rebut the charges. That's the type of due process that we commonly think about in the public sector. And as I mentioned, it turns largely on uh, whether or not You've got civil service rules or some sort of city or county ordinance or state statute or most commonly a collective bargaining agreement that limits the employer's ability to discipline an employee at will. So what's a liberty right? Well, when you think about it, not all public safety employees in the country have civil service or have binding arbitration or any job protections at all. If you are, for example, a police officer in Selma, Alabama, you are an at-will employee. You can be fired because uh, your police chief doesn't like the way you look one morning for any reason or no reason at all, so long as that reason doesn't violate a federal statute or constitutional provision or some sort of state statute. In a large number of states, by my count for law enforcement, 12 states for firefighters, 11 states, there simply are no job protections for public safety employees. So, if they are fired, they're not going to have a property right to the job. But what courts have held is they may have, it's kind of a lesser right in the sense that less due process has to be afforded, but they may have a liberty right. So what does liberty mean? Courts say that all of us have the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment rights to protection of occupational 
liberty. Uh, and this is in addition to other liberty rights that we might have, like reputational liberty. Occupational liberty means that the employer has terminated the employee. It only applies in termination cases, has terminated the employee, and has done so on the basis of charges that have made it highly unlikely that anyone else will hire the employee for a comparable job in the future. Think of it as kind of constitutional occupational defamation that the employer has said something, either in the charges that it has brought, or maybe it's held a press conference, however it has done so, it has said something that is false and is likely to prohibit the employee from being able to follow their chosen trade and profession in the future. And what happens if you have a liberty right? What are the employer's obligations? Well, instead of a pre-termination notice and a hearing, which is what you get with a property right, with a liberty right, you only get a post-termination hearing. And it is a particular type of hearing. It's an opportunity to rebut the false charges made by the employer. They are called name-clearing hearings. And what happens in a name-clearing hearing is the uh, former employee shows up and says, hey, you got this wrong, you got this wrong, and you got this wrong. Uh, and then the employer nods its head, says goodbye to the employee, and makes the decision as to whether or not it wants to change anything, whether it wants to uh, rehire the employee, very unlikely, or more likely, whether it wants to change what the charges are, to remove whatever the most stigmatizing charges are, or most likely, whether the employer decides to do nothing and just continue with the charges as written. And that's the extent of the due process on a liberty claim. Okay, so what's this case all about? Uh, and it's an unusual case in that I don't think I've ever seen a liberty case uh, quite with this set of facts. So this involves Patrick Jones. Uh, he didn't last long as an employee of the Lake County Sheriff's Office in Illinois. He was hired on September 3 of 2019 and immediately began a required training course uh, through what's known as the Police Training Institute. And if he completed this course, he would be certified as an Illinois law enforcement officer and be able to become a deputy sheriff with the Lake County Sheriff's Office. During Jones's first days at the Institute, instructors encouraged the, recruit, the recruits to share notes and to utilize something called Quizlet, which is an online flashcard program. On September 17th, so two weeks after his first day, Jones thought of a different way of researching things uh, to uh, practice for the exam. And his method was to text his girlfriend. 
who was a police officer in a nearby jurisdiction and who had completed a police training academy two years before. And he asked her, do you have your notes from the exam? Uh, Jones's girlfriend replies uh, and provides even more than notes, provides a Google Drive linked to a document. Jones characterizes the document as a study guide that Jones's girlfriend had put together with her classmates. The county, in firing Jones, characterized it as a cheat sheet that contained questions and answers from the state exam. Uh, and Jones gets this thing on September 17th. On September 18th, uh, he discusses it with uh, several other recruits and shows them the document on his phone. Of course, somebody uh, tells the county that this has happened. Uh, the county begins an investigation, concludes Jones cheated, and fires him. Well, Jones is a recruit. He doesn't have any property rights to the job. He's a probationary employee. So if he's got any due process rights here, they are liberty rights. So he files a federal court lawsuit alleging that his termination violated his liberty rights uh, to due process. And the court that's considering this starts off by saying, and this is pretty standard, look, if you're going to bring a liberty claim, you got to prove three things. You have to show that you were stigmatized by the employer's conduct. Secondly, you have to show the stigmatizing information was publicized. And third, you have to show a tangible loss of other employment opportunities as a result of the public disclosure. Uh, and that's why I suggested to you that a good way to think of these liberty claims is a constitutional occupational defamation. You have to show you're stigmatized, that that is, that there is defamation, that there is something that is false. You have to show that it was publicly disclosed, and you have to show that it impacted your ability to follow your chosen trade and profession. And the federal court dismisses Jones's lawsuit saying, you fail prong number three. And here's what the court has to say, quote, Jones must show that because the charges have been made, it is unlikely that anyone will hire him for a comparable job in the future. The standard here is high. It must become virtually impossible for the individual to find new employment in his chosen field. The court continues, putting aside a legitimate dispute here as to whether Jones's difficulty in attaining a job as a police officer was due to the contents of the termination letter or due to the fact of his termination alone. In other words, could it be that employers don't want to hire Jones because they thought he cheated? The court's saying, yeah, that's a possibility. But the court says, putting that all aside, the fact that he now has a comparable job with the Kenosha County Sheriff's Department defeats his occupational liberty claim. Well, that's kind of a mic drop at the end of this court's opinion. Uh, 
Turns out Jones got another job, and he got another job in law enforcement. So how can he possibly show, back to the quote from the court, that it's virtually impossible for him to find new employment in his chosen field? He has new employment in his chosen field. The court says, therefore, summary judgment for the county and the sheriff, case dismissed. Don't see too many of these uh, occupational liberty claims. And the reason is most employees do have property rights to their job. And if they have property rights to their job, well, the obligations on an employer are much more significant in terms of predisciplinary hearings and notice and a fair adjudicatory system and the like. Uh, so there's no employees that I've ever seen who have property rights to the job who would also go looking for a liberty right. You already have something that's much better. Okay, that's it for the June 2023 uh, first Thursday from Labor Relations Information System. Uh, I look forward to the start of the summer. I hope you guys have a great summer. Uh, Perhaps we'll see you at our Grievances and Arbitration Seminar in September uh, in Las Vegas or at our Advanced Police Discipline Seminar in November. Uh, with that, uh, this is Will Aitchison signing off. <music>